Amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles now to Genesis 32. And it's, again, found on page 32 of your pew Bible. Makes it easy. Genesis 32, where we'll be reading in just a moment, verses 22 through 32. The Old Testament that's on your lap right now is one book from Genesis to Malachi, but that one book has three great sort of divisions in it, or periods, or ages, or uh, divisions, however you want to think of that. Um, Those three divisions are the fathers, the old covenant through Moses, and then the prophets and the kings. Um, And those kind of go together. So the first great age of Old Testament revelation is the age of the fathers that we've been studying. Uh, These were men and women who believed God. They did not have a Bible. They were not a nation. They did not have a temple. They did not have a priesthood. They walked by faith in the simple promises of God. And they had some oral traditions that is some revelation that had come down to them from Adams. They knew some things basic right and wrong, but they they didn't have full revelation as we have today. That's the fathers. There's a break about 400 years as the period of the fathers ends with Joseph. 400 years of slavery in Egypt and then begins the, what is really the old covenant with Moses. Moses is the one who really brings the people out. They become a nation. They have a tabernacle, becomes a temple. They have a priesthood through Moses' brother Aaron. And the nation sort of takes shape. And then the last and final division of your Old Testament is what I'm calling the prophets and the kings. Think about David. Think about Isaiah and how the different prophets uh, come to the kings of Israel and say, you're not following the old covenant And you're not doing what the fathers did, and that's why you're in trouble. And then the Old Testament finally ends with the greatest of its prophets, John the Baptist, who is a priest's son. He should have been in the temple being a priest, but he rejects that, goes out to the Jordan River, which, remember, is the river Israel came into the land from, and says, you're not really Israelites because you're not actually doing what God has called you to do. You need to be baptized. We need to start over because Messiah is near. And then one day Jesus is seen there by John the Baptist. And he says, here's the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And at that moment, the Old Testament book closes and the New Testament opens. So we're studying that Old Testament book and we're studying the life of the fathers. We saw how God chose um, Adam and Eve as the first members of his church, the first believers. He gave them promises But as soon as they had children, there was terrible sin in the world. Their sons actually uh, went to fighting and Cain kills Abel. And sin accelerates with incredible speed. Things get so bad that God sends a flood to end that whole era of history. Because sin accelerated so quickly that human life was not going to make it. It It was just so bad on the earth. And after Noah, we live in the period after Noah, God institutes some things to keep it from ever becoming that bad again. However, men are still sinners, and the men that came out of Noah's Ark had children, and they had children, and they decided to make a name for themselves, to build a great ziggurat temple, a great tower, by which they would control God and control their destiny. They call it the Tower of Babel. And they built this, and they said very clearly, we've done this to make a name for ourselves. 
And it's at that very moment that God comes to a 75-year-old man and woman who's living, living not far from there, Abraham and Sarah, and says, I'm going to take you, a barren couple with no children, and I'm going to make a name for myself. And I'm going to make your name great. And we've been following Abraham's journey, how he struggled for so many years to believe God's promises, to have children. Eventually, through Sarah's faith, Isaac is born. And at the climax of Abraham's faith struggle, he's asked by God to take Isaac, his only heir, the sort of key to all the promises, and to go up to Moriah, what we know today as Jerusalem, where the cross was, and to offer Isaac there. The last minute, though, God provides a ram, which is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he, the ram is offered in Isaac's place. Isaac marries the bold and beautiful Rebecca. They have twins together. Esau comes first, and Jacob is grabbing at his heel. And we're told, uh, Rebecca's told through a vision from God, that God loves the younger and not the older. Paul says later in Romans 9 that before they were ever born, God set his love on Jacob and loved him. But Jacob is a deeply flawed man. He's a, strict, a trickster and a schemer. He doesn't really trust the Lord. He's not a man of prayer. Prayer is almost completely absent from the first part of his story. And so God has work to do on Jacob. And so Jacob eventually ends up in exile into what we call today Syria. He receives there his wives, his children, He's come back now into the land, and he's worried about one thing. It's really the thing he's been dreading his whole life for 20 years, and that is his older brother Esau. Esau has 400 warriors with him, and he's coming to meet Jacob. And Jacob is frightened, and the events we're about to read happen on the night before he meets his brother, when his fear is sort of at its fever pitch. So that's what we're looking at this evening. If you would, please stand then. And we're beginning in verse 22. This is chapter 32 of Genesis. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with the God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we pray that through your word, we would indeed meet with Jesus now, just as Jacob did. And as Jacob was changed 
As he wrestled uh, with Christ, so might we be changed as we wrestle with Christ in his word. Work in us, we pray, all that you desire for your glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Why? Why would God wrestle with anyone? At one level, I'm going to admit it, it doesn't make any sense, does it? No one, after all, has even the most distant hope of defeating God. What could possibly be the point of such a mismatched duel? And we might even add, isn't it below the dignity of God? Especially if this is Christ, and I believe it is. Isn't it below the dignity of the king of glory to roll around with a man all night in the dirt? Maybe some of you mothers have thought this before. You've witnessed your husbands shamelessly wrestling your sons and throwing them about. Why do we dads, and I include myself in this, why do we dads do that? Are we really as dumb as we look? I'm confident that all the dads in the room today know the answer. And maybe some of us have had to explain this to our wives and friends before. We do it to toughen them up to teach them to keep going, to teach them to strive. You see, dads instinctively know that life is difficult and that men are naturally competitive and not cooperative. We instinctively want our sons to build endurance. Yes, every time Micah asks to arm wrestle me, I could simply embarrass him and beat him instantaneously. But instead, what do we dads do? We let them fight a little. We work with them. We don't want to crush them by simply instantaneously beating them. But we also don't want to win, let them win all the time either so that they think life is easy and that we can be just sort of controlled. They need to know that life is difficult. Or let's switch the metaphor if this helps for some of the women in the congregation. Let's say you're teaching your daughter or your niece to play chess. When you first teach her the game, you can beat her in five moves, but you don't, do you? You know that if you just crush her every time, she will quit. She will be miserable. So you give her hints. You say to her, are you sure you want to move your queen there? As she gets better, If you feel she's getting lazy or too confident, you play harder and you win a couple matches and that annoys her and she doubles down and she works harder and enjoys beating you more because it's a challenge. Can you see how this connects with our text tonight? Why would the infinite God of heaven and earth wrestle with a man? God can win in one move, one instant. In fact, sometimes God does that in our lives. He just steps in and wins instantaneously. But more often than not, God wants a battle. He wants us to learn. He wants us to learn a delicate and critical balance. He wants us to be confident enough to fight the world. He wants us to be confident enough to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil And yet at the same moment, humble enough to know that we cannot win without him. This is what Jacob needs to learn as he approaches Esau. 
Jacob is both too confident and not confident enough. Can you see that? He's too confident in his schemes, in his plans, in his tricks, in his own strength. So at times, he even in the text comes off as rather obnoxious. But at the same time, the same time, he's not really courageous, is he? For all his confidence. Isn't that so true of you and me? Our confidence is so easily misplaced. We trust in ourselves. And when you do that, you will always be scared because deep down you know that you don't have enough. Tonight, see with me how this perfect balance of tenderness and firmness plays out. See first how God engages Jacob. Second, how Jacob clings to God. And lastly, how God remakes Jacob. So see first with me how God engages Jacob in verses 22 through 24. Look at those verses with me again. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, the river. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Jacob here is in deep fear and anxiety. He knows he cannot defeat his brother and his brother's 400-man army. In fear for the survival of his family, he has sent, you remember last time, gifts to Esau. The Hebrew there actually suggests that they were tribute gifts. Always the planner... Jacob also positions his family near the Jabbok stream, a place well known in the Bible for military camps. It was a very defensible spot. However, despite all his wise planning, the gifts to Esau, all that he's done, despite all this, he is sleepless. So verse 22, he moves the family in the night and they re-enter the promised land. They cross this ford and go back now. Now they're back into the promised land. But he doesn't go with them. He lingers alone on the other side of the stream, just on the edge of the land of promise. The only good explanation, I think, for this is that he stayed to pray. He sought solitude. He wanted to be alone in order to work through what lay ahead of him the next day. To his amazement, at some point, the wrestling in prayer became actual wrestling. All night, God, in the person of the angel of the Lord, wrestled with Jacob. As difficult as those hours were, they were also glorious hours. Jacob was face to face with the angel of the covenant, whose name, as we find out later in Hosea, his name is Wonderful. In fact, it may be the greatest revelation of God in your Bible up to this point. It's so intense, so personal, so close. Some of you will know by experience that wrestling may be the single most demanding activity a man can engage in. It uses all your body, every bit of you. And it's so personal, isn't it? You twist around another person in order to do it. You see, God knows how to reveal himself to each and every person in the Bible. 
Jacob was born a wrestler. His name literally means one who grabs the heel. He wrestled with Esau. He went north and he wrestled with Laban. It makes sense, you see, that Abraham's greatest moment of faith would be the offering up of Isaac on a mountain in Jerusalem. That was Abraham's biggest struggle, trusting God for that little boy, for Isaac. In the same way, it makes sense that Jacob's high point with God would be wrestling. Jewish tradition says that Jacob was an unusually large man, a giant actually. And the Bible hints that there could be some truth to this. He certainly was a mighty man. You remember that when he first came to Syria, he wrestled the stone lid off of a well by himself, a job usually done by multiple men and shepherds. Between his size and his ability to scheme, Jacob struggled all his life with trusting God. He always felt, maybe you've struggled with this too, he always felt that he could pave his own way in life. Jacob believed, as many do today, that life is out there to grab. Sure, God is a helpful, bearded figure up there somewhere. He's the man upstairs who gives you a helping hand occasionally. But in reality, life is what you make it. That was Jacob's philosophy. But of course, this is not true. Life is so fragile, so fragile, and it's God's to give. God then is breaking down that false trust that Jacob has in himself and replacing it with a new humility and a new confidence. One old Welsh commentator says, God must bring us to himself, and he can only do this by bringing us to the end of ourselves. God must bring us to himself, and he can only do this by bringing us to the end of ourselves. You see, the truth is, left to ourselves, if, if God leaves you alone, you will always be, at the end of the day, just full of yourself. So absolutely stuffed with yourself that there's simply no room for God. But in this encounter, finally, the fear of man that has ruled Jacob's life, his concern for himself, is taken away and is displaced with a healthy reverence or fear of God. Jacob begins to understand that it is not Esau's blessing or even Isaac's blessing that he must have. In reality, it's God's blessing that he cannot live without. The book of James in the New Testament reminds us that God cannot tempt anyone. God does never appeals, never appeals to our sin nature. He never exploits us the way Satan does. However, God does test us. He does wrestle with us for the same reasons a father wrestles with his son, to build something great in us. One of the hardest truths in the Bible to accept is this, that God has chosen my mix of blessings and hardships, that it is a divine mixture, a perfect prescription for building in me the character that God desires. Grace is a wrestling power. And so see first this great wonder that God wrestled with Jacob. See, second of all, another great wonder, Jacob clings to God. And you see this in verses 25 and 26. When the man, that is the angel, 
saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, the angel, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. There's a really important transition here, so don't miss it. Initially, God seems to have surprised Jacob in the dark. Maybe Jacob didn't even realize immediately who he was wrestling with. But now Jacob understands that it is God and not an assassin sent by Esau or a robber by night. And so the focus shifts from God testing Jacob to Jacob persevering with God. The question becomes, how long can Jacob hang on? What if his powerful body is broken? It's at this point that God touches Jacob's hip and puts his hip out of joint in some way. Jacob is now powerless. His hip is out of joint. He's probably using his large frame to simply hang on the angel or even lay on the angel. It's all he has left. As dawn breaks, the angel asks to be released. And Jacob says something I think most of us would not dare even to dream, much less to say. He utters these really remarkable words, words I would encourage you to use in prayer and never to forget. Verse 26, I will not let you go. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Commentators and pastors disagree over this passage. I don't usually mention commentators in my sermons too much, but I think we can learn from this disagreement. Some pastors and commentators like Dr. Boyce at 10th Presbyterian and others uh, say that this passage is all about how God brings us to the end of ourselves, how we end up clinging to God, limp and lifeless and dependent on him alone. Jacob learns that all his strategies and schemes from the meal he sold to Esau to the striped sticks he used to bribe uh, the sheep into doing what he wanted to the bribes he's now sending to Esau, he learns that all of these schemes have not worked. He needs God and he needs God's blessing. He's finally come to see his desperate need of God. This is certainly true. We cannot miss how Jacob here hangs on Christ with no strength of his own. But other commentators and pastors, men like Martin Luther, point out that this passage is actually not about weakness in Jacob, but strength in Jacob. Here's what Luther says. In this manner, God is conquered when faith does not leave off is not wearied and does not cease, but presses and urges on. So it makes its appearance in the Canaanite woman, the woman we read about earlier, with whom Jesus was wrestling when he said to her, you are a dog. The bread of the sons does not belong to you. The woman did not yield here, but offered opposition saying, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And so, says Luther, she was victorious, and she heard the excellent word of praise, O woman, great is your faith. So which is it? Which is it? Is this a story about Jacob's holding on his perseverance, as Luther says? Or is it more a story of being broken before God? 
Well, the answer, I think, given by John Calvin is it's both. He solves the puzzle. Calvin says, with one hand, God is strengthening Jacob. And with the other hand, he's testing Jacob, just like a loving father would do when he wrestles with his son. Calvin says, in trials, in our trials, God appears to be weak against us so that he may conquer in us. For while he lightly opposes us, puts some pressure on us, he supplies invincible strength whereby we overcome. And says Calvin, God is doing this, of course, because like a good dad, he knows that all our lives on earth here will be a struggle. He wants us to be both humble and strong. Do you see? God doesn't want weak, pathetic Christians who can't pray, fight, or work. At the same time, he doesn't want arrogant, self-confident Christians either. We, like Jacob, have a twin problem. On the one hand, we have too much confidence in ourselves and our schemes, our plans. But at the very same time, we have far too little confidence in God. At the place we should be courageous, we are timid. And at the very places we should be weak and dependent, we run ahead in our own strength. So what's a good father like God to do? Well, he tries us. He tries us our whole life, doesn't he, down here? With one hand, he gives us problems we can't conquer to make us humble and cause us to trust him and not ourselves. But at the very same time, with his other hand, he gives extraordinary strength and blessing. Isn't this what you found in your own life? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, God has given to everyone in this room things that you cannot beat, things you cannot win. It's like hitting a brick wall to humble you, to keep you dependent, to keep you prayerful. And yet at the very same moment, he's trying you that way. He's strengthening and encouraging you again and again. He arms us. Here's the point. He arms us for the battle and he gives us the battle. With one hand, he leads us to war With the other hand, he gives us everything we need. This is the point of wrestling with your son. You need to teach him to win, to persevere, but not in a way that makes him lazy or arrogant. So we see a God who engages Jacob. We see, second of all, Jacob's perseverance as he clings to God and awaits the blessing like the Canaanite woman. He won't let go until he's received the blessing. Lastly, see that God remakes Jacob in verses 27 through 32. Look at those verses with me. And the angel said to him, what is your name? Now, God knows Jacob's name. But in the Bible, when God asks your name, he's asking you to confess who you are. Remember, Jacob's name means heel grabber. So he says, what is your name? And Jacob says, Jacob, I'm a heel grabber. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him. 
as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. You might recall that the Apostle Paul had a kind of limp, if you will, of sorts. We don't know exactly what it was, but Paul had what we call a thorn in the flesh, right? The scriptures call a thorn in the flesh. Many Christians, many commentators believe that it had something to do with his eyes. Remember, Paul, like Jacob, was attacked suddenly by the Lord Jesus Christ. In a blinding light that did make him blind for a time, Jesus called Saul and renamed him, ultimately, Paul. Many believers have held that Paul's eyes, temporarily blinded, were never fully healed, and that this was the thorn in his flesh. Whatever it was, Paul tells us something more important. He tells us why it was. It was to keep him from pride, he says, because of the surpassing power of the visions he had of Christ. It was in this weakness, this condition that he had, whatever it was, that God promised to make Paul strong and to glorify himself. Now, as Jacob limps away into the rising sun, imagine the situation. Now he can't possibly fight his brother. He's exhausted from wrestling God all night. More importantly, he is now lame at the crucial moment of his meeting his archenemy. He, like Paul, will have a thorn for the rest of his life to keep him humble and to teach him that God's strength is made perfect in weakness and not in scheming. Also, like Paul and others, Jacob is renamed on the basis of this experience. A new name in the Bible marks a rebirth, a major transformation, a new identity. Remember how God renamed Abram and called him Abraham. Abram meant exalted father. Abraham meant father of a multitude. God does this in Genesis 17 when he appears to Abraham and explicitly brings him into covenant with himself. So also here, Jacob's name, which meant grappler or wrestler, is changed. It's changed to Israel, which means one who strives with God or alternatively, one for whom God strives. It's impossible to tell. And I actually think that's helpful because it isn't one or the other, is it? It's, it's both. He is the one that fights with God and wrestles with God in his promises, but he is also the one God fights for. And Jacob had to have known that as he limped to meet his brother, now unable to do anything to defend himself against his brother. God must fight for him. And that's exactly what we see. As the sun rises, this man limps away a new man. Do you see now what we've been saying all along about Jacob? We've said all along as we've studied his life that grace is a wrestling power in our lives. When we think about grace, we often jump right to the, the sweet side, you know, the side of being forgiven our sins. And that is absolutely true and where we need to start. But grace does not leave us where we are. It is a wrestling power and it's not content until it's transformed us. 
It's not content until it's changed our name and our lives. And so you see, God met and engaged Jacob. You see also, secondly, how Jacob clinged to him, and now finally how God remade him, a new man with a new name and a limp to remind him of that wonderful day. Now step back with me a moment. I want to follow the example of our text as we close out this sermon by using both hands to apply this text to you. With one hand, I'm going to challenge you, as Calvin says. And with the other hand, I want to encourage you. So here's the challenge first. And no one does challenges better than Baptist preachers. So here is Spurgeon, the great Reformed Baptist uh, preacher. He's writing a letter. He's writing it to some people in ministry. And these people in ministry have had no success at all in ministry. None. No one's coming to Christ. No one's growing. Nothing's happening. And listen to what Spurgeon says to them. You have never been violent about it. He's accusing them. You have never been compelled by the divine spirit to make up your mind that converted they should be and no stone shall be left unturned until they were. You have never been brought by the spirit to such a passion that you have said, I cannot live unless God bless me. I cannot exist unless I see some of these children saved. Then falling on your knees in agony of prayer and putting forth afterwards your trust with the same intensity towards heaven, you would never have been disappointed for the violent take the kingdom by force, end quote. Now, let's be clear. Spurgeon is not saying that we can wrestle things out of God that are against God's will or that ministry success can be done in our own strength. Spurgeon, Spurgeon, remember, is a very strong Reformed preacher. He didn't believe that we could change God's mind or that we could do anything without God's constant help. But what he did believe was that persistent and urgent prayer is the powerful means God uses to change things every day. As James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Not every prayer that we make, I understand this, not every prayer we make, not every situation we're in will involve this kind of heavy wrestling. However, we will have things in our lives and the lives of others around us that must be wrestled out with God in prayer, where we must show tenacious ability, stubbornness, clinging to the promises, naming the promises. We need to be able to cling to God. We need believers in the church. I need believers praying for me. I know this, who are strong and courageous. We just had our children sing that, right? And I was so glad we did because I, I think in many ways that might be the watchword right now for the church in this country. Where is your courage? Where is the tenacity? Where is the determination? Is that just something of a bygone age? We knew our grandparents, my grandparents, had that tenacity. I see it less and less in people of my own age. We need that. And that's what Spurgeon's saying. We need the persistence of the Canaanite woman. Three times she asked Jesus. Jesus put her off and she kept coming. There will be things in your life 
There are things right now in which you need courage. You need to stop getting defeated and saying to yourself, I'm going to stop praying about this. You know, forget about it. It's not that important. Where you need to press forward with courage. That is very much why Jacob gets the new name. He wrestled with God, Israel. He persevered. He persevered. And so that is, that's my encouragement. That's one hand. Now, I'm sorry, my, my, my admonition. Here's the encouragement. Let's go now to the encouragement. Because I know what, and asking you to do that, that's a, that's a tough thing. But this passage is not just about persistence. It's also a passage of profound encouragement. Because no one ever wrestled so well or so deeply with God as does, did our Lord Jesus Christ. You have something in a sense that Jacob did not have as he wrestled. Yes, he was wrestling with Christ, but he did not probably fully understand that. As you and I come to God in prayer, as New Testament believers, we know that we have a Savior who has died for us, who has risen, who stands right now in the presence of the Father. And no one ever prayed with power the way Jesus Prayed with power. Sometime later tonight, go to the end of the Gospel of John and go to Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus knows how to prevail with the Father. In that high priestly prayer and really all of his prayers, he prayed for his disciples and for all of us. And even right now in heaven, he still does that. John Flavel, a Puritan minister, writes this. Can such a father as God deny the strong reasonings and pleadings of such a son. Oh, it can never be. He cannot deny him. Christ hath the art and skill of prevailing with God. Let me translate that. Christ has the ability and the skill of prevailing, prevailing with God the Father. He has the tongue of the learned, if the heart or hand of God were hard to be opened, if God was resisting, yet it would open to him. But the Father also loves us and is already inclined to do us good. Who then can doubt Christ's success? The cause Christ manages in heaven for us is a just and righteous cause. The manner in which he pleads is powerful, and therefore the success of his suit that is, his pleading is unquestionable. Do you see then the true Israel, the true one who wrestled with God on the cross and prevailed and is now on your side as your elder brother and as your high priest? On his cross and in his resurrection, he sealed your salvation. You will be blessed if you're a believer here tonight. You have a name. I don't know if it's the name you have now or if you'll be given like Jacob a new name, but your name is written in the book of life. And now in this life, when you wrestle with God in prayer or in some part of your life, you never have to worry about the final outcome. It will always in the end be blessing because Christ has the art and skill of prevailing with God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, when we think about our advocate with you, who even now stands in your presence, as John saw him in the book of Revelation, he's dressed as a high priest.
there in your throne room. He stands for us. And we are wrestling hard with life. We are wrestling hard with sin. We sometimes lose and we sometimes win. And there are many difficult things in our lives. And Father, you try each one of us. How thankful we are that the master wrestler is there in heaven on our behalf. And through him and in his name, we pray that you would give us the victory. That we would trample our enemy, the serpent, Satan, under our feet. And that we would emerge victorious, though we emerge with a limp. Yet in our weakness, may we find strength and victory. Father, these things we pray with courage and with persistence. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.